This evening, if you would please, and open them up to the book of Galatians chapter 1. And it's a privilege to be able to be back tonight to come back to our study of Galatians. Uh, this is really a great book, and I, I know we're just getting started in the letter, but I've just got this feeling it's going to be a long and profitable study for us. I've uh, enjoyed so much putting together uh, the messages that I've worked on thus far, and I just know there are a lot of good things here for us to learn. And I think it is essential for us to study and to understand Christian doctrine, and we're not like most churches, I don't think. At least I hope that we're not like many people that are just content to skim the Bible and uh, get a few tidbits of information here and there and then just to be satisfied with minimal basic information. I think the scriptures are very clear about this, what God expects us to do concerning his word. I think he expects us to study it, to learn it, so that we're not thrown around by every wind of doctrine. And the Apostle Paul addressed that in 2 Timothy 2.15, scripture that's very familiar to you, I'm sure, where he said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The first part of that verse is often misinterpreted to mean study, as in hit the books or keep studying the Bible until you're thoroughly acquainted with it, and they use the word study like that. But that's not actually what the word means there. It means to study, to show thyself approved, means to be very diligent in your efforts to be a good worker of Jesus Christ. And then the last part of the verse does lend itself to the interpretation that we should be good students of the word, because it's impossible for us to rightly divide the word of truth unless we're very well acquainted with what the Bible has to say. And we know that this is a problem no matter where you go in our country and around the world, that there are so many pastors and teachers that do not rightly divide the word because they simply don't know enough about it. They haven't taken time to study Scripture. And I think there are many people that are like a largemouth bass, and uh, Ricky can probably appreciate this, but there are a lot of people that are like a largemouth bass. You know, what a fisherman does, he puts a fake bait right down next to the hook, and then he throws it out there into the water, and that big old bass comes along, and he sees that, and he grabs it and takes it down hook, line, and sinker. And what he doesn't realize when he does, he thought he was getting a good meal, but he ends up being a good meal for somebody else. And this is what happens with people with the Bible. They get just enough of it, but they don't get quite enough, or they get the wrong things, and they're just taken in by all kinds of false doctrine. Well, I don't want you to be the wide-mouthed bass. And so what we're going to do is study the doctrines of God's Word. You study along with me, and then hopefully I'll help you to clearly understand these truths that God has for us here. Now, I've mentioned several times as we have begun this study that this epistle is the one that greatly changed Martin Luther. Now, at one time, he accepted Roman Catholicism's false teachings on justification, but then he read Galatians, and he sincerely studied it, and he prayed about it, and he realized that, obviously, Paul and the Pope were on two very much different tracks. And so when he began to study this, he was convicted by the Holy Spirit of the truth of God's Word. He became convinced of justification by faith alone, and that became the rallying cry of the Reformation. And so if you think that rightly dividing the Word of truth is not important, 
All that you really need to do is look at what has happened in history when people began to study the Word of God. You know, see, up until the time of Martin Luther, which you have the Roman Catholic Church had been growing and growing all those centuries, and the people were depending upon the priests to feed them. And the Roman Catholic Church told the people, you don't have the right to study the Word. You can't really understand it. You, you really can't interpret it. That's something that's reserved for the magisterium. And so when someone finally came along and said, well, I'm going to read God's Word, I'm going to study God's Word, I'll find out what it says for myself, and I'm going to stick to the Word as the foundation of my faith, then the truth settled in, and now we have the true doctrines of the faith, and that doctrine actually turned the world upside down. See, most people don't really understand this, that, that this doctrine of the truth of justification by faith is what broke the stranglehold of Catholicism and actually changed the Western world. It's what gave rise to the Renaissance, to democracy, and freedom of religion. And you may not think that, but that's, that's kind of where it got its start. It was when that hold of the Roman Catholic Church was broken. So if it wasn't for the true gospel of Christ, we would all be chained to a political church that still preys on the poor and still greedily enriches itself with all kinds of superstitious doctrine. And so without this truth, you would never hear about the scandalous nature of the priesthood. You'd just have to live with it, and you'd have to accept it. So Martin Luther and the other reformers, they were very dangerous people to the Roman Catholic Church, and that's why uh, they tried everything in their power to stop them and their preaching. But the good thing about this is, is that God's always in control. God, God is going to be sure that the gospel gets out, that the truth gets out. And so now we have the privilege of reading and studying God's Word, and all of us ought to be exceedingly thankful for that privilege, and we ought to take every opportunity that we have to study the Word of God. And you see what happens when people don't. When they don't study, you have really big problems. Well, we do have a, another problem now. Perhaps we're uh, thankfully past in, in, I don't like to call it Protestantism because I don't want to identify ourselves with that, but thankfully we're past some of those kinds of problems that the Roman Catholic Church created for us. But now we've got this new insidious tidal wave that's really going across modern Christianity today. It's sweeping the church, and that is the irreverence of this feel-good type of church that feeds the sensual appetites of people, and it's the church that makes self God. You know, selfishness used to be something that people weren't too proud about. I mean, you wouldn't really want to advertise to people that you were selfish. But now it's almost like a virtue. I mean, many people think it's their virtue or something because they're, they're proud of the fact that they're selfish. And they even show it in their worship and how it's so man-centered instead of God-centered. So hopefully we'll be able to help stem that tide a little bit by preaching straight from the Word of God and telling people just like it is, even if it offends and I can promise you this, it will offend. And that's because people are naturally stiff-necked and hard-hearted towards the things of God. So they will be offended by the preaching of the truth of God's Word. We're already told that we can expect that. So people really want to, what they want is they want to sit on God's throne. And God's not willing to share his throne with anybody. He's the only one that's going to sit on the throne. Well, that's introductory. 
Look at your text this evening, and we'll see what Paul we'll see what Paul really feels about a false gospel. It's a very serious matter to him. So, beginning in verse number six of Galatians one, he says to these churches in Galatia, "I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ." But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have received. Uh, Let me start that over. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Bob, I'm going to have to borrow your big letter Bible. I'm having trouble. I'm having trouble seeing the words tonight for some reason. But uh, tonight we're, we're on the second message of the defense of the gospel. And what I want to do is just recap the first message for you just a little bit. Uh, These are things that really do bear repeating because they are such critical matters concerning the Word of God. And we have two major points that we've covered thus far. The first one is the consternation of the apostle. And that is the angst that's felt by Paul when he learns that These converts in Galatia are being vexed by false teachers that are leading them away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible for a person to be saved and then to become confused. But whenever we become confused on doctrine, especially when we're talking about the doctrine of salvation, that's when the church ceases to be effective in the world. Now, I'm sure that many of you know churches that, because of pragmatism or whatever, have decided that they would dilute the the Scriptures, they would water down the gospel of Christ, they would try some other method in order to attract crowds. And when that happens, that's when the church more readily becomes a social club than it does a place where the fellowship of Jesus Christ can be enjoyed by the people of God around the Word of God. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago on Sunday morning that the person who says that I am content only with the basics, that I don't really need to know anything else other than love God and love my neighbor, well, a person like that is confused about what the Bible wants you to know about Christ because knowing more about God causes us to love him more. We receive the love of God through the knowledge of him. And when we have more knowledge of God, we love him better, and we also learn to love our neighbor. Well, these Galatians were people that were easily persuaded by false doctrine, and Paul was amazed that after they had learned about the true grace of God, now they want to be encumbered by this legalistic system, the legalism of the Judaizers that had perverted the gospel of grace. Then the second point that we looked at was the call of the gospel. And I took some time with that because I wanted to explain to you how that the truth of the gospel is believed. And I, and I think that Paul affirms in verse number 6 that these people had the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, that they were truly saved people. And we noticed in that message how there is a distinction between the external and the internal call of the gospel. 
The external call is when the gospel is preached to all people and everyone receives the same information. But the internal call is when the Holy Spirit takes that word of God and he begins to apply it to the person's heart and he specifically, he specifically works in the heart of the person that he intends to save. So the Holy Spirit regenerates and enables that person to receive the truth and to be converted through repentance and faith. And that work is God's alone. And it's a work that's always effectual. We sometimes refer to that as the irresistible grace of God. And that term is often misunderstood, not always used properly. And so maybe we could say better, it is the effectual grace of God. So the external call of the gospel is not enough by itself. And that's because we do not have the, the ability, the spiritual receptors to discern the call of the gospel and to really understand it because the Bible says that we are dead in our sins, spiritually dead. And we, we sometimes think that all that we really need to do is this, we need to be a very simple with the gospel message that if we preach the gospel with all the clarity that we can, if we explain the gospel to the best of our ability, then people will be saved. But how often do we do that and people aren't saved? I mean, how clear do you think that Paul was when he preached in Lystra and then he was stoned and left for dead? How many times did the prophets of the Old Testament come to God's people and give them the truth of what God wanted them to know, but then they were mocked and they were beaten? Stephen mentioned that when he addressed the Sanhedrin. And what did they do? Well, they followed what the Jews normally would do, their convention, and they stoned him to death. He was very clear about what he taught. He took them on a tour of Old Testament history and showed them how their, how their fathers had rejected the message of the prophets And what happened to him? They still resisted like they always had, and his reward for preaching the gospel was that they killed him. Well, for sure, we have to be clearer with the gospel of Christ, but clarity is not the determining factor. The determining factor is when the Holy Spirit works internally, when the Holy Spirit calls internally. And the Holy Spirit must come and make a person's heart alive. And through the operation of the Holy Spirit upon the heart, then that person is able to believe the gospel. So that working of the Holy Spirit, when he is working beneath our consciousness, that's imperceptible to us at the time. And we don't even realize that it's going on until we come to repentance and faith. This is what Jesus said about it in John 3, verse 8. He said, The wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. So Jesus, just give an example there. You don't know where the wind comes from. You can't tell where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. It's just there, and you see the effects of the wind. And that's the way the Holy Spirit works. You don't know when he's working in your heart until you see the effects of it. And that's when you come in repentance and faith to Christ. Now, sometimes... My wife says to me, how do you get all of that stuff out of that verse that you're teaching? That doesn't say anything like that in that verse. Well, this is what happens when I I zero in on the words. And so I see that word calling, and so I have to determine, what does Paul mean by that? What does he mean when he says, ye are so soon removed from him that have called you into the grace of Christ? What does he mean by that calling? How does God call? And so we ask that question, and that takes us on a path through the Bible where we learn how God calls people to salvation. So we discover how he works with the lost sinner. 
And I think that I'm remiss if I don't explore those paths. Now, I may not do that for every single word in the text, but when we come across something as important as this, the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I'm not doing my duty if I don't tell you what that's about. And so that's why we study it like we do. This is an important doctrine, effectual calling. So we'll explore all these other paths, but as we do, we don't want to forget what the main intent of the passage is. We don't want to miss the larger meaning of the word. So before we're done, we'll pull all of that together, and uh, we'll understand the whole thing in its completeness. Well, I want to move on tonight to the third point of our outline, and that is the confusion of the gospel. Now, the sixth verse says again, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And then the beginning of the seventh verse goes on, and it says, which is not another. So you put it together. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. Now, I've already mentioned to you the surprise of the Apostle Paul at this shift of doctrinal position. He says, you are so soon removed. And that word removed is an important one because it's a term that means that they had defected from the gospel. It's actually a military term. It's like, it's like being a turncoat. So these are people that had become religious Benedict Arnolds. Well, who and what were they turning from? Well, they're turning from the gospel, which is the same as saying they're turning from Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is not a philosophical idea. The gospel is a person. The gospel is what Christ did, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's what he did on the cross. And so when you turn your back on the gospel, you are turning your back on the only begotten Son of God. And you think that's not serious? It's the most serious thing that a person can do. Now, I, I, as I mentioned last week, they were confused, but a full and final apostasy simply cannot happen. They've been effectually called by the Holy Spirit of God and... Uh, once you have been called by the Spirit, you're not going to change from that. Now, Paul has full intentions with this letter that he will be able to straighten them out. True believers always remain true believers, even though they might be confused and fall into sin. I think it's interesting that the Philadelphia Confession of Faith addresses that very problem among Christians. Here's what it says about believers. It says, Through unbelief and temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation. Then it goes on and it says, And though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgment upon themselves, Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Now, I'm sure that there may have been some false converts in those that were in the Galatian churches. And if they were false converts, then they're being led into deeper and deeper sin. They're being deceived because a person can never be saved by a false gospel. I mean, there's nothing but the truth that will ever save. You can't get salvation out of a false gospel. And sometimes that false gospel looks so close to the real thing that we just discount it. We, we don't think it's very important if there's just 
a slight variation. For instance, if I say to you, how are you saved? Then you say to me, well, I'm saved by putting my faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I say to another person, how are you saved? And they say, well, I'm saved by putting my faith in Jesus Christ and I was baptized. Well, that's a very subtle difference. Especially when I think that baptism is a Christian doctrine. But when you add baptism to your faith and say, that's how I got saved, that has changed the gospel of Christ dramatically. That's the difference between, between heaven and hell. See, one side is grace and the other is law. And when one person dies and he goes to heaven, he's permitted to come in because he came by grace alone. And the other person will be excluded from heaven because he tried to add works to his salvation or to his faith. And I'll expand on that a little bit later on. So Paul says the difference between these two things is the difference between a true gospel and a perverted gospel. The second one is another gospel. Now we need to look at that word another We see it twice here, once in verse number 6, and then the second time at the beginning of verse number 7. And we have the same word, another. That's the same word in English, but it's not the same word in the Greek. We have two different words here. The first one is the word heteros, and you probably recognize that. That's where we get words like heterosexual, means of the same sex. Homosexual, that mean, or of a different sex rather, and homosexual means of the same sex. So a heteros gospel is a gospel of a different kind. Then the second word in verse number 7 is the word alos, and that word means of the same kind. So when Paul says, which is not another, he's saying it's not a gospel of the same kind. So you have two uses here. And he's saying that you've moved to a different gospel. You've moved to a gospel that is not the same kind. Now, that's a subtle difference between those two words, but it's like he's saying this, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto a different gospel, which is not a gospel of the same kind. Now, why is that so important? Well, because there aren't two gospels of the same kind. There aren't two gospels that will save. There aren't two gospels that have the same effect on the soul. One gospel saves and the other one doesn't. The other damns. And so this is very important because it's so prevalent to hear today that there's just many paths to God. You choose your path, I'll choose my path, and we'll both end up at the same place. And that's like saying there are two gospels of the same kind because they produce the same result. But Paul denies that. There's one gospel, one kind of gospel, and any other belief will not save. Another belief is different. You can't bank on another gospel. You can't trade in some other currency when you get to heaven other than the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to break this down a little bit, and we're working our way towards the end of the message. And we're all right now, hopefully, I think you are, just a little bit ahead of the text because we already know what the problem here is. Paul is leading up to this. And and if you've read ahead just a little bit, as I think that you probably have, you already know what this false gospel is. We've already discussed what the problem is. When we get to chapter 2 and we look at verses 11 through 21, we're going to see there that the problem here is faith plus circumcision. 
If they were saying, you have to be circumcised, that has to go along with your faith in order to be saved. And then in chapter 3, it's explained there as justification by faith plus the law as opposed to justification by faith alone. So that's the crux of the matter that we're looking at here. Circumcision is a command of the law, and you can't add that to faith as the instrumental cause of justification. Now, why is that true? Why is this true? Why are we saved by faith alone and not faith by works? I'm going to talk about that for the rest of our message tonight. Why are we saved by faith alone and not faith plus works? So what happens when you have another gospel? Why is Paul so upset about this? What happens if you have another gospel? Well, first of all, when you have another gospel, it insults the cross of Christ. Whenever you add works to the gospel, you're saying that what Christ did on the cross is not sufficient to pay for our sins. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And the person that wants to add works to salvation denies that, and they say it's not finished. There's still some more work to do. Something else has to be done. Now, in the case of these people, what they wanted to do was add circumcision. And so they say, well, Christ began the work, but Moses has to finish it. So we need Christ, and we need Moses both to be the Savior. But it's even more serious than that because it's obedience to the law that actually makes it work. I mean, the Mosaic law is worthless unless you obey it. So the easy question here is, who makes that work? Who's the one that obeys? Well, of course, you're the one that obeys. And so it becomes more serious as as if it could be because now you're saying Christ didn't do enough. I have to finish the work that Jesus did on the cross. And if you'll look at chapter 3, verse number 3, Paul pounces on that suggestion. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? And can you see why Martin Luther jumped on that as well? Because Roman Catholicism answers that question with a resounding yes. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Yes, yes, we are so foolish because that's what we believe. So we began our work with faith, or we began our salvation with faith, but then we're made perfect by what we do. Christ's work is not enough. And so they say there's seven sacraments that you have to add to it, and you better make sure you get them all right because you're in a heap of trouble, boy, if you don't. Make sure you got it right. And then further, Christ didn't do enough to put away your sins because when you die in a state of grace, whatever they think that to be, you'll go to purgatory, and there you'll be purged from the sins that you didn't take care of in this life. So Christ didn't do enough for you to save you. You have to join your work with his. And hopefully, when both of you get your heads together and you work on this problem, just maybe, just maybe, you might be saved. Now, folks, I would maintain that that makes man his own savior. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that tonight, but I will mention this in passing, that if you believe that Jesus did the same thing for all people by the death of the cross and that all that he did was to just put people into a salvable state, and it's because of your decision that you're saved, then you've actually become your own Savior. Christ helped you, but it was you that actually put yourself over the top. And so the question becomes, did you save yourself or did Christ save you with with your help or did you save yourself with Christ's help? And neither one of those is a defensible position according to Scripture. 
Secondly, another gospel invalidates the grace of God. It invalidates the grace of God. Now, what is God's grace? Well, grace is simply defined as unmerited favor. And so if you add human merit to it, then what do you have? You have merited favor. And so salvation becomes something that God owes to us. So in other words, God has an obligation to give us salvation. But God doesn't owe us anything. I mean, the only thing that we as humans have ever earned from God is our destruction. Our sins have separated us from God. And if we get what we deserve, then we are obliged to receive nothing but death. You know, some people say, well, God, you know, everything will be fine if you just treat me fairly. Just, just, give, me, just give me what I deserve. Give me justice. And you know what I always reply to that? God, never give me what I deserve. Don't treat me fairly because fairness means I'm going to go to hell. What's fair is that when you break God's law, you get punished for it. Did you bear the penalty yourself? So if God is fair and he treats everybody alike, we all get the same thing. We all die and we go to hell. I don't want fairness. I want mercy. And I don't want justice based upon what I've done. I want God to give me justice, but I want him to do it based upon what Christ has done for me. Because what he did was to pay for my sins and take them all away from me. He's taken the penalty for me. So the grace of God allows the goodness of Christ, his, his perfect life that he lived, the merits of his death, that it allows all of that to be imputed to me by my faith in him. As Paul says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Grace through faith. So grace alone is given to me by faith alone, and that's the instrumental cause of justification. So what does the Scripture say? What happens when you try to add works to this mix? Well, the Scripture teaches that it invalidates grace. And who better than the Apostle Paul to explain that to us? He writes in Romans chapter 11, Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So he's telling us that grace and works cannot mix. And if you try to put those two together, you're going to violate the principle of both. Grace is not grace if works have anything to do with salvation. So you have to decide, is it the grace of God alone that saves me? Or is it my faith or, or, or do I work my way to heaven? Is it my works alone that save me? So you can't have both. You can't have a combination of both. It can only be one or the other. And God's salvation is a gospel of grace, and any other gospel is a gospel of a different kind, and a different kind will damn you. Now, thirdly, another gospel incurs the anger of the Almighty. God is not happy about any other gospel. Now, I have much more to say on this next week, but I want you to look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, But though we, or an angel from heaven... Preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. And I want you to note that word accursed. And I want to say this as reverently as I possibly can. 
Paul says through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that if anyone preaches another gospel to you, let him go to hell. That's what the word means there. Now, that's a strong statement, especially coming from a person that that did everything he could and endured everything that was necessary to try to keep people out of hell. He preached the gospel as strenuously as he could, try to reach as many people as possible to keep them out of hell. But he makes no allowance for this. And this is really the force of this statement here, that if anyone preaches a gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ and deceives people with that gospel, let them go to hell. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, I want to read something to you that's very similar that was said by Peter and Jude. And uh, they're talking about the very same issues. And you can check me out on the context of this because I don't have time to read all the surrounding verses. But you'll see when you get into it that the subject is false teachers. And in in this case, they're speaking of those who sneak in and teach a false gospel. Peter says in 2 Peter 2 verse 12, But these as natural brute beasts, and notice this language, made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of things they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. In the 17th verse, he said, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried with the tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. Then Jude wrote, and Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now I'm going to give you three guesses as to what Jude means when he says God is going to execute judgment on these people. First two guesses don't count. Three guesses in the first two don't count. should be simple for us. Hell is the end These are vessels, the Word of God says, that are fitted for destruction. I'm going to get into that more in the next message, but I wanted to get it here because I just want to show you what happens when you take a false gospel, when you try to get that going, when you try to mix works with grace. The result of it will be God's wrath on anybody that tries. So this has some very, very serious implications, especially for what is passed off today as Christianity. I mean, you can go to dozens of places around here and hear something that's totally foreign to the Word of God. Hear something that is not the gospel of Christ. And it's hard, you know, I'll be preaching on this in in Matthew and also um, in our our other studies. I'll, I'll get into this probably in Revelation too as we talk about the last part of the book of Revelation. I mean, this is just serious business and you can't, You can't really come down and be nice about this. The Word of God is not nice about it. You you don't handle people like this with kid gloves and be soft about it. We have very, very strong language in the Bible about people who teach lies from the Bible, who tell a false gospel. So we're going to stop with that. And this confusion of the gospel, it really does have consequences for people that become confused. And it also has very serious consequences for those who make people confused. So we have to know the truth. That's why we get down to the details. This is important stuff. What we got to do is just rightly divide the word of truth. And so we just keep digging down, just getting down into it. 
until we get it all out here and we understand what God has to say and what his gospel really is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we do have some strong language that's written here and very, very serious matters. There's only one way that people go to heaven. And the Bible's very clear about this, that all people who do not trust Jesus Christ and understand the way of salvation will never be in heaven. And Lord, for those that purposely would preach a gospel that damns people to hell, for whatever reason it might be, for their own personal gain or anything else, we know, Lord, it's, it's, it's extremely serious, and we have to stand up against it and preach against it. So help us, Lord, to stand on your truth. Help us to be a people that will dig into your word and make sure that we know what the word says and will be strengthened by that word. Bless your people. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.